Welcome to the Ponder New Podcast. I'm Pastor Rob Myalis, and in this podcast, we ponder anew the ancient uh, teachings of Scripture and what they might mean for us in our world today. And in this episode, I launch a full frontal assault on the state of New Jersey. <laughs> That's a little bit of an over-exaggeration. But what I really uh, sort of uh, ponder is my problems with what's called penal substitution. It's a way of understanding what God has done in the cross. And I, I want to look at Paul's letter to the Romans um, and, and why that's not what Paul is arguing in spite of how often uh, these very verses are used to justify that way of thinking about God's work in Jesus. So without further ado, we will get pondering. says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For no human being will be justified in his sight by deeds prescribed by the law, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. He did this to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of boasting? It is excluded. By the law? By that of works? No, but by the law of faith. I blame New Jersey for this mess that we're in, and of course I would because I was born on the Pennsylvania side of the Philly suburbs. Uh, and we just blame Jersey for everything. But what I specifically blame Jersey for is how we have often misread Romans chapter 3. Now, before I begin, I'll just say that many uh, brilliant minds, uh, people smarter than me, have looked at uh, Romans chapter 3, and it has been electrifying for the church over the centuries. In fact, Again, many of the great sort of, sort of turns, uh, the reformations of the church, uh, arise out of people reading Romans, including Romans chapter 3, not just the uh, Protestant Reformation of the early 1500s, but again, other points in history, 400s in Augusta, 1900s, uh, and Karl Barth. But other times, again, again and again, uh, Romans just happens to be this book that really the world turns on. And Romans chapter 3 happens to be Sort of now we're getting into some really core stuff here. So all this to say that um, I approach this with, in spite of my laughing in the beginning about New Jersey, a great deal of humility knowing that some people have really prayed over this, pondered this, seen this Bible um, verse play itself out in their lives and in the lives of cultures and peoples uh, for far longer than I have. So that sort of disclaimer aside, 
Um, I'll get into why I do actually think there was a problem in New Jersey. And what happens in uh, Romans chapter 3 is that Paul uh, continues his argument here, and he moves now to talking about how fundamentally whether you're sort of a noble Jew, a noble Gentile or a Jew, that, that what the law demands of us in terms of moral perfection is not sustainable for humans. It is not possible. And uh, in fact, Paul quotes here a number of Bible verses to talk about the challenges of the human heart, uh, the way in which we're prone to violence, in which we've turned away from God. And Paul finally just concludes it with, he says, um, really in verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So Paul is making this extended uh, kind of point here, just again, quoting all sorts of scriptures saying, look, humans um, were not enough. And that is the basic premise of Christianity, that somehow we need a savior, right? We need some grace. We need something beyond ourselves. And uh, we might have time this or next week's podcast to sort of think about what that grace looks like. But I want to now focus on, on the next Bible verse, though. And in the next Bible verse, Paul says, and this is how the particular translation I have, it says, um, Now we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. Okay, now here's where New Jersey comes into the plot. For most of Christian history, um, there was never one singular way that Uh, Christians tried to understand the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But in the middle of the 1800s, there was a professor at Princeton Seminary named Charles Hodge. And Charles Hodge really wanted to understand uh, what, what God had done. And being a good Calvinist, he wanted all of the dots to, to line up, right? He wanted his, his sort of his proof, almost like a brilliant Euclidean sort of geometric proof where all of it adds up. And so what he does is he develops an idea called what he calls penal substitution, or what it's often referred to. And in this way of thinking, um, God is rightfully mad at humans for our disobedience and our lack of of goodness and of following the law, and uh, that for this we must be punished And the only way out of this punishment is that somebody would step into our shoes and take the punishment for us, Um, somebody who had no need on their own to be punished, and therefore they must be this perfect person to to, um, not have their own crimes against them. And uh, in so doing, then um, let us off the hook, as it were. And uh, this is then again the penal, the punishment, the substitute. And the one who is the perfect substitute then is Jesus Christ. And that faith in Jesus Christ is what activates this substitution, where if we believe in Jesus, 
then Jesus will, on our behalf, take the beating that was meant for us, which he did on the cross. So we got three problems, minimally, with penal substitution. The first is that it's not historical. And, and what I mean by that is not that it's not correct because nobody came up with it until 1850 or so, but I think we have to kind of scratch our heads and, or at least acknowledge that this wasn't the dominant metaphor for understanding God's work in Jesus Christ over the centuries. There are other ways that Christians have thought about it. And in spite of the fact that within American Protestantism still to this day, this is by far and away the dominant metaphor, the dominant way that people talk about it, a courtroom where God is um, both judge and torturer um, and wants to do this. And again, only because uh, Jesus uh, stands in your place do you have any hope for mercy. Uh, This again is tracked after tracked to convince us that we're not only guilty, but that God is mad at us and that we will end up in hell, uh, again, receiving the penalty unless we, again, have Jesus' mercy. I just want to say again, this is everywhere in America, but this is not everywhere in historic Christianity. Second uh, thing is that it, it just so not, it just leans on God's wrath. And it, in a way that makes God, frankly, bloodthirsty. Uh, and it's not, um, it, to me, it's just a really bizarre sell to tell people, oh, by the way, you know, uh, you're a terrible person that God wants to beat up for all the wrong that you've done. But don't worry, God still loves you. And God has sent somebody else to get beat up in your place. And it just makes our God look like a God who needs violence, who needs vengeance in order for there to be any sense, and any righteousness. Again, it seems like we buy now into the myth of um, sort of redemptive violence, that only if there's violence can finally we bring about peace. And um, just on a personal level, I find that uh, more and more repugnant as I observe sort of how humans behave. Um, I I don't find that, and I just find it evangelically to sort of share the good news terrible if I'm supposed to convince people that God actually wants to hurt them for the wrong that they've done. But you might say, well, pastor, though, but God is angry at what humans have done. And I would say, actually, you're, you're right about that. I do believe that God is angry. I believe that in both the New and the Old Testament, there are many images of God deeply upset about the way that humans treat each other, about the way that... Um, our hearts are prone towards violence about the way in which, um, yeah, we make boundaries among each other and, and then hurt each other across these boundaries. Um, so, yeah, I think that God um, is not happy. However, there's a difference in God being displeased with humanity and God being bloodthirsty. And when... Um, you know, in Scripture, you know, sort of a, a sort of maybe a vengeful God is the one behind Noah and the flood who floods the earth and saves the animals, um, but really is okay wiping out humanity. And afterwards, God says, you know, I'm not going to do this again through the rainbow. But God also says, you know, I realize, though, that the, the human heart is still bent on evil. 
that, that simply just, you know, wiping out humans, like, isn't actually going to change who humanity is. There was a theologian in the last century named Gerhard Ferdi, and he was a student of Luther. I mean, not directly, but he was a Lutheran theologian. And what he really begins to offer is that the problem with penal substitution is, is actually not that it emphasizes God's wrath too much. For him, the, the problem was that um, it didn't address the fundamental problem, and that is the human's heart. That what really needs to happen in the human heart is not that we are um, glossed over, just sort of given an out, but that our, our heart actually needs to be made new in Jesus Christ. And that penal substitution finally falls short because it, it, doesn't, it doesn't emphasize Easter enough. Um, or just it falls on its own self because it never really deals with the wrath. If, if God is so angry at humans, um, and he, but he loves us because of Jesus, yet he's still kind of, God is still somehow okay with our, our hearts being all messed up when we live forever for humans. We just kind of got off. So that, so, so for me, there's just a number of reasons, sort of conceptually, theologically, why I really struggle with penal substitution. So what is then the connection between the Old Testament system and the death of Jesus? And this whole, again, Old Testament way of sacrifice. Paul seems to be making a connection for Paul uh, writes here that uh, in verse 25, Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. When you're a sacrifice of atonement, again, that you kind of want to rev your engines for a penal substitution. But let's slow down a minute and actually look at what's happening. First of all, the word for uh, blood here is, is interesting, the inclusion of blood. Uh, blood was used uh, in the atonement uh, ceremony that's described in the book of Leviticus. Every day there was one day a year that a high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and would make atonement for the whole people. And it's a rather complex uh, process. But what is, is fascinating um, is the role of blood within this sacrifice, uh, within this whole atonement day. Because the, the blood is not used in the day of atonement to, to mollify God's anger or to bring about God's pleasure. When you uh, actually start to read Old Testament sacrifices, Blood is treated very differently. There is sort of, there's blood, there's meat, and there's fat. <laughs> and the fat is what goes to God as a way of your saying, God, I will make a sacrifice of something good and tasty for you. The meat gets eaten by the priests and the family. But the blood, there's a whole lot of rules in, in sort of kosher kitchens about blood and how blood is, is going to be done because blood is a place of, of life. And in, in fact, on the Day of Atonement, the blood is used um, to cleanse, to cleanse. Um, you could almost say to take away the uncleanliness, to take away the sort of the shame um, or, or the guilt. But it's not done to, um, 
finally to deal with the sin or to make right. It's, it's really just sort of the, the, the cleansing. And that's hard for us on the other side of modern germ theory to believe that blood would have a cleansing power. But I want to suggest that when Paul throws in the word blood here, that yes, that seems right at first to connect, okay, atonement, sacrifice, the blood of Jesus. But if you start to play around with the Old Testament metaphor more, the, the blood of Jesus is, is far more about um, would have a cleansing power rather than a propitiating power. Okay, we're going to go a little bit further, though, because I think that the the word here for sacrifice of atonement um, in is a specific term. It's used twice in the New Testament, and it's not translated sacrifice of atonement uh, in the New Testament, and the nearly 60 or 80 times it's used in the Old Testament. It's not translated that way either. It's, it's used, this word is, is translated normally just as mercy seat. It's the place, the place where the sacrifices would take place on the Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark of the Covenant is built, and, and the Ark of the Covenant holds the Ten Commandments. It would ultimately become the, the center of ancient cultic Judaism, uh, where the sacrifices would take place in the Holy of Holies, and the high priest was allowed to go in there one day here in the Day of Atonement. And there was this little sort of plate. This plate had two... Uh, angels, uh, cherubim carved over it. And that plate was, again, where um, sacrifices were, were sort of sort of the center of, of what was going on. But, if, but, but it's interesting that if Paul is actually saying God puts Jesus forward as a mercy seat, that now there's something else going on. Because the mercy seat uh, is actually not the sacrifice itself. <laughs> the mercy seat is where uh, God says in Exodus that God will meet humanity. And this is where Moses hears the voice of God. Specifically, God says in Exodus 25, 22, there I will meet you from above the mercy seat. In other words, what if What's really going on on the cross isn't so much about um, us as humans um, needing to sort of pay some price to God. But what if instead Paul is making the argument that in the cross, this is where God is going to meet us? That, uh, and this is where, in this place of profound suffering and injustice, that God is going to reveal God's righteousness. For, God, for Paul will, will write, you know why he does all this, Paul says? He did this to show his righteousness. Not, again, because he was really angry and wanted bloodthirsty. In fact, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the sins previously committed. It doesn't sound like a terribly uh, venge, uh, <laughs> vengeful and obsessed with justice God, right? I mean, he, he passed over them. And it was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. That Paul seems to be asserting here that the cross is far more about showing us who God is, that God is the one who's faithful, Jesus is the one who's faithful, 
even unto death, even when humanity's at its worst. And this is what's echoed in the Gospel of John, where if you read the whole Passion of Christ, it becomes clear that what's, who's on trial is not Jesus, but again, in, in sort of scene after scene, the person who's on trial is humanity. Uh, Jesus is totally innocent, but the humans are not. And so this is, so what if the, the divine drama here is humanity has revealed itself, both in the specifics of the cross, but in general of human history, as Paul has already argued in Romans, that we uh, fall short of God's glory, but God has revealed himself to be the bestower of glory, to be the bestower of goodness, to be the one who is faithful, even coming among us, even though it, it meant ultimately the good would die in Jesus. And that some, that humanity's big problem is that not only are we wrong, not only have we not given God the glory and honor that God deserves, not only have we sinned and fallen short of the works of the law, but that we keep trying to make ourselves right. We keep trying on our own means to justify ourselves. And Paul is like, give it up. That God alone is the one who makes right. God is the fundamental mercy seat. And it's not going to be from a high priest anymore, but God himself will choose to do the, the, the cleansing work on the cross. I worry here that I may try to have solved too much of a puzzle, uh, that there's sort of a limit to how I or another Christian can fully understand the mystery of what happened in the cross in spite of our need to give an account for it. Uh, but I will just uh, humbly offer that I really think the penal substitution is something that theologically is problematic um, but also just fails just the linguistic sort of acid test of, of is this actually what Paul is talking about here? And it's, it's not. And I don't think Paul fully fleshes out it all here other than at this point to make clear that the righteousness that we need is not going to be brought about by our uh, works, but that this righteousness is going to be a gift to us that is received through faith. And next episode, we'll talk about grace and sort out all your questions about what grace actually is and how it works. But I think for today, we've done enough pondering about why penal substitution is bad. <laughs> and lastly, I'll say that God loves New Jersey, and I actually think New Jersey is a great state too, <laughs> but enough ponderings for today.